Howdy, partners. You're listening to Conversations with Jacob, hosted by my good friend, Jacob Waller. Make sure to check out the podcast where podcasts are available and check out the video version on YouTube. You can follow us on social media. Facebook is Conversations with Jacob. Twitter is at CWJ Podcast. And you can visit our website, conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. Hey, you got a show idea? Maybe a guest suggestion? Email us at conversationswithjacob at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Jacob Waller. And what's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Jacob. Oh, we got a good episode lined up for you because on today we're talking we're talking with uh, Mr. Larry McReynolds. But before we get to Larry, I want to plug in another podcast, not my podcast, but another podcast that I like to listen to. It's Two Chairs No Waiting. It's an Andy Griffith uh, podcast for fans uh, hosted by Adam Newsom. TwoChairsNoWaiting.com is, is where you can find it, by the way. Oh, it's Adam Newsom. It's going to be on the podcast um, probably in a few episodes from now. Uh, joining me today, like I said, is Larry McReynolds. And Larry, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Jacob. Been looking excited to join you. Oh, yeah. Um, which I've been wanting to interview you for a long time, but I couldn't ever find a uh, contact info for you. Well, I'm glad you finally found it, and so now we're connected, and we'll, uh, we'll chat away. All right, absolutely. Now, for the people that's listening, and how did you get into broadcasting? Was it something that you uh, came upon, or was it something that you just walked into? The journey into broadcasting, Jacob, is pretty interesting because – you know, I'd, I'd been in NASCAR since 1980, so I'd been in, you know, roughly 20-plus years as a crew member, and then eventually, obviously, for about 17 or 18 years as a crew chief, and uh, never saw myself doing anything outside of that. I figured by when they probably put me six foot under, I'd be saying four tires next stop. <laughs> From about 1995... To 2000, I, I did a little bit of, of broadcast work. I did some work for, for Turner. I did some work for TBS and even did a, did a few races for CBS. I, I would do it maybe on an off weekend for the truck series, for the Xfinity series, or maybe on a Saturday, the day before a cup race, as long as everything was going good with the cup car I was working on. But once again, I, I'd maybe do eight or 10 or 12 a year. Never saw myself doing it, though, as a full-time career. So when Fox came in along with NBC, uh, they actually sealed the deal and signed it with NASCAR at the end of 1999. But it was not scheduled to start until 2001. Fox came in. They bought the rights for the first half of the season. NBC bought the rights for the second half of the season. So I remember it like it was yesterday, Jacob. Uh, it was we the, the 99 season was over. Uh, we were getting ready for 2000. We were getting ready to go to Daytona and do some testing in January. It maybe was like mid, mid, late December. I was actually in the body shop at Richard Childress Racing, working with the fab guys and the body shop guy, getting ready to go test at Daytona on our Daytona car. And they paged me to the phone. 
And I walked out of the body shop around the corner to a phone, answered the phone, and it was a, an Australian-speaking gentleman by the name of David Hill. He introduced himself as the chairman of Fox Sports. He said, I'm, I'm sure, as you know, we have bought the rights to NASCAR starting in 2001. He said, we've already hired Daryl Waltrip as our driver analyst. We have watched some tapes of some work that you've done. We would like, at least like to have a conversation with you about maybe becoming our crew chief analyst. Well, Jacob, I, I didn't even know what to say. It totally <laughs> caught me off guard. And he, he, I, he could kind of tell it did. He said, you know, we're, I don't need an answer today. He said, we just wanted to plant the seed at least of, of moving forward, having conversation and maybe, you know, get through the holidays and we'll reach back out to you after the holidays and, and, and kind of get a little deeper with the conversation. So sure enough, move into the spring of 2000, the season was already going. Uh, again, I was with Richard Childress racing, the 31 car with Mike Skinner and a gentleman by, by the name of Bill Brown with, with Fox Sports reached out to me and said, Larry, I, I know you talked to David Hill, our chairman, back in December. We're actually coming to Charlotte for Coke 600 race weekend. If it's possible, during the Xfinity Series race, we'd like to get you and Daryl Walsh together to go up to a, a makeshift TV booth. We don't know who's the play-by-play -play guy going to be, but maybe get you to call 50 laps or so of the Xfinity Series race, just kind of an call it an audition. So sure enough, uh, that weekend came, and I went up there doing the Xfinity Series race, and it was Daryl Walsh myself. And actually, they had not hired Mike Joy yet. It was Rick Allen, now the voice wow. of NBC. And we called about 50 laps of the race. Seemed like it went well. And they said, you know, we'll be back in touch. Uh, sure enough, about a month or two went by, and they reached back out to me and said, uh, we really enjoyed and liked what we saw with you and DW. We're still not sure who our play-by-play -play guy is going to be, but we would like to proceed with these conversations about hiring you to, to come to work for us starting in 2001. And it was one of the toughest decisions I've, I've ever made, Jacob. My wife and I, there's no telling how many hours of conversation we had about it. And I think what finally led me to make the decision to try it is they were only offering me a two-year deal. So I felt like if I go do it, they don't like me or I don't like doing it. I can always go back to being a crew chief. And then I guess I was so afraid if I didn't take the opportunity that the opportunity would never come back to me again, because remember, it's a very small group of people that's going to do this. And I would always second guess not giving it a shot. And so I made the decision, and I've got to say 24 years later, it's a decision I made that I, I have no regrets. <laughs> now, when did you become a crew chief? Did you have other roles before that? So the, the interesting thing about my journey into NASCAR, that's more interesting than my journey into broadcasting. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I was an only child. I came from no racing background whatsoever. Uh, my mom, dad, they were not race fans whatsoever. But my aunt 
my mom's sister, who was probably more like a sister to me, because she was the baby of the family. She's only 10 years older than, than I am. And my grandfather, my mom's dad, they were, they were race fans. And every Friday night, we would make about the 12 or 15 minute walk down to the local short track. And the three of us, every Friday night, we'd go down there and watch the local short track races. And then eventually my aunt got married and I'm still in, you know, I'm basically still in grammar school, still in high school. Eventually my aunt got married and her husband was a race fan and the four of us would go. Now my aunt was a little bit of a hot rodder to say the least. And so this one night, I think it might've been like 1975. I was probably a sophomore or junior in high school. They started a brand new division called a street stock hobby division. It was a stock of race car as you could think about building. The rules was basically a one pager. You got a car, you took the windows out of it, you took the seats out of it, you put a few roll bars in it, you put the fuel tank up in the trunk, put a number on it, boom, you had a car. Well, this night they started this division. My aunt looked at her husband, who was a mechanic, and said, you know what? I could do that. Well, he kind of chuckled and said, well, you know, go out and get you some sponsors and we'll build you a car. Well, I'm sure a lot because of being a female in a male sport, she went out and rounded up more sponsors and we almost had room to put, put on the race car. So lo and behold, my racing career started there in the, the basement of my aunt and uncle's house, built my aunt's street stock car. I didn't know a three-quarter wrench from a three-quarter boat, but I know I was like a sponge. Everything my uncle did and said, I just I took it took it in and just tried to learn as much as I could as fast as I could. Now, when did you become the crew chief for DV Addison? All right, so I worked on my aunt's street stock car for a couple of years. And racing is like a disease. It's getting your bloodstream and there is no getting it out. And I won't say she didn't have success, but she didn't have a lot of success. And I, as hard as you have to work as a volunteer on a race car and still have a regular job, I wanted a little more out of it. So I was actually graduated, had graduated from high school and I was working in a junkyard auto recycling center, whatever you want to call it. And the, the junkyard that I worked for, the man that I worked for by the name of Charles Finley, he actually sponsored a local late model car. And earlier in the week, he had told me, he said, hey, I'm going up to Nashville and watch Bobby Ray Jones. That's who owned the car. Richard Orton was the driver. I'm going to go up and, and watch him race on Saturday night in Nashville if you want to go up with me. So we closed the junkyard about noon on Saturday, and him and I went up to Nashville, about a two-and-a-half, three-hour drive. And, of course, we're in the pits, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working my way into helping or holding or pushing or whatever I can do. And by the end of the night, I'm, I'm all in helping these guys on this car, on this late model. And at the end of the night, when they were loading up, Bobby Ray Jones, a man, again, that owned the car, Said if you uh if you ever get tired of helping your aunt on that street stock car, you come on out there to our shop. We'll put you to work. And that's all I needed to hear. So 
So about Monday or Tuesday night, the next week after I got off from the junkyard, I uh, I went out there to the shop and I, I said, you know, Mr. Jones, were, were you serious about me helping? He said, absolutely. He said, now, I don't pay anybody. You're, it's strictly volunteer. And I said, no, I, I hear you. So I started helping them. And we actually had a lot of success in the 70s. Uh, a man by the name of Richard Orton drove it. Then Dave Mater III actually started driving. And then Mike Alexander started driving. We won a lot of races. But I was to the point where I was working night and day between having a regular job at the junkyard, working at night, sometimes all night on that race car, traveling all over the southeast over the weekend. It's like I know I'm only about 19 or 20 years old, but my life's not going to last very long doing this. So I started flirting and floating around the idea of maybe moving to NASCAR. Had no idea how to do it, though. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. How, how am I going to do this? So it's amazing. God works in mysterious ways. So working at this junkyard, I actually worked behind the counter. I no longer was working on the yard, pulling parts. I worked the counter. And we had a guy that worked the yard. He'd pull the forklift up, and he'd park it right behind the building, and he'd leave the darn forks up. And I'd stayed on him all the time. you got to lower the forks down. Somebody's going to bust their head wide open on one of these forks. Well, sure enough, this was maybe late June, early July of 1980. I went, I ran out the back door to go check a part, had somebody on hold on the phone, telephone. When I went out the back door, I centered one of those forks in my forehead, busted it wide open, had a concussion, had God knows how many stitches. So I, I had to sit at home for a couple of weeks. The doctor said, you've got to take it easy. You got to, not only is it busted wide open, you got, you got a concussion. So I'm laying around the house. I've read every magazine I could watch, read. I've watched every soap opera I could watch on TV. And there used to be a NASCAR newsletter. I actually had to be a member of NASCAR to work on the slate model car at some of the NASCAR tracks. So there was a NASCAR newsletter that would come out every month. And on the last page, on the back page, there was always some classifieds. And I just was reading through these classifieds. And it was things like people selling race cars, people wanting to buy engines, selling and buying parts. But lo and behold, the last classified ad in this particular newsletter, it said, new Cup Series team starting in Greenville, South Carolina, looking for mechanics and fabricators, call this number. Well, I sat and stared at that ad for about 30 minutes, and I decided to call the number. And I called the number, and it was actually a lady that answered the phone. It was the, the owner's daughter that was starting this team. Her name was Dana Williamson. The owner was Bob Rogers. We talked for about 15, 20 minutes. She actually knew who I was because – they had raced late models, and we had raced against them. So we talked for about 15 or 20 minutes. She took my information. She said, uh, we'll be back in touch. Well, Jacob, I hung the phone up, and I said, well, I'm probably one of about a million guys that's called this number. I'll never hear from them, but you know what? I at least made the call. So a couple of weeks went by, and I'm back at work now. And I get home. I was still living with my mom. Uh, my, my mom and dad were divorced and I get home this one day and uh, 
my mom said, by the way, Larry, there's a lady from Greenville, South Carolina called you today. Her number's in there by the phone. I went, what? (laughs) It was too late to call her back this particular day. So the next day, my lunch break couldn't come quick enough, and I called her, and she said, you know, Larry, here's what we'd like to do. We're coming to Birmingham here in a couple of weeks for this big labor day base. We're going to run that late model. We would love for you to go back to Greenville with us. We're going to run three or four cup races at the end of 1980 before the full season 1981. Why don't you come back and work for a few weeks and we'll, we'll see if you like us. We'll see if we like you and we'll go from there. So sure enough, they came and raced and actually the car that I prepared for Bobby Ray Jones won the race that night with Mike Alexander. But after the race, I crawled up in their hauler and back to Greenville, South Carolina, I went and started working up there. And I, I, I felt like I had died and went to heaven. <laughs> I'm actually working for a race team as my job and I'm getting paid. I don't have to leave my job at five o'clock and go to a shop to work on race cars and not get paid. So I did this for about three or four weeks and they came to me and said, Larry, no question. We'd love for you to go to workforce full time. And so the season ended and uh, they flew me back to Birmingham. Uh, I packed a U-Haul behind my little, little 71 green Pinto that actually drugged the ground before I put anything in it. And up I-85, I went back to Greenville, South Carolina. My mom and dad, again, they were divorced, but their story pretty much jived. They looked at me and said, you'll be back in six months. You'll be broke and you'll be hungry. We'll feed you, but we're not going to bail you out of debt. And I said, you know what? I respect exactly what you're telling me. You're probably absolutely right. But you know what? I got to go try. And my mom and dad now, of course, are both deceased. But 43 going on 44 years later, I'm still up here in the Carolinas, and I think it worked out pretty good. Well, how about that? Now, um, now, and what do you remember of the final race with a Davy Addison? All right, so you had actually asked me how I became Davy Allison's crew chief, so I'll, I'll address that first. All right. So I, I had, you know, worked in the industry, the Cup Series, for about 9, 10, 11 years. And I finally became a crew chief for King Racing, which was the 26 car, the Quaker State car. Uh, Kenny Bernstein, the drag racer, owned it. He didn't drive it. He just owned it. We started that team in 1986. I became the crew chief. Uh, Joe Rutman drove it in 86. Ricky Rudd. Well, Morgan Shepard drove it in 87. Ricky Rudd drove it in 88, 89. That's who I got my first couple of wins with was Ricky Rudd. We won Watkins Glen in 1988 and uh, Sonoma in 1989. And then Brett Bodine drove it in 1990. And we actually won Wilkesboro, North Wilkesboro, Brett's only Cup Series win. You know, I was I was very committed and, and dedicated and – everything you say to Kenny Bernstein, because I feel like he gave me an amazing opportunity to become a cup series crew chief. I had never won a cup series race. The closest I'd been to victory lane was walking by it on pit road. So I feel like 
Kenny took a big chance on me. And even though Kenny gave us everything we needed, I just felt like we never were going to have all the parts and pieces in place to contend for multiple wins and maybe ultimately a championship. So at the end of 1989, when Ricky Rudd was leaving King Racing, Robert Yates came to me, the owner of the 28 car, and said, we'd love to, to talk to you about coming to work over here and being Davey's crew chief. <clears throat> so I, I met with Robert, and uh, it went well. And at the end of the meeting, I actually shook Robert's hand and took the job. But I got cold feet. I said, you know, I, I basically have built this 26 car by myself. Kenny Bernstein, I, I just am very loyal to him. I can't do it. I cannot leave this 26 car. So I called Robert Yates and I, I said, I know you're going to probably think I'm not very much of a man. I shook your hand. I took this job, but I can't leave the 26 car. I just can't do it. He was not happy, but he understood. So went through 1990, like I say, one North Wilkesboro. We get into 1991 and Brett's driving the car again. And we were running well, but we just, we started having engine issues. We go to Atlanta Motor Speedway about the fourth or fifth race of the year. We sat on the outside of the front row and we only ran about 20 something laps and the rains moved in and they canceled the race until the next day. In the interim, in those first 20 or 20 something laps, the 28 car had blown up and they had loaded up and went home. Robert and Davey wanted to try to fix the car, but Jake Elder, the crew chief, said, we're not fixing it. We're done. So they loaded up and went home. So we get this race restarted the next day. We're running inside the top five. We had been good all weekend with the 26, and we hadn't been back racing 10 or 15 laps into the race on Monday when it resumed, and we blew up. We load up, and – my wife and, and my two oldest kids are with me. Our youngest, Kendall, was not even born yet. <clears throat> we drove back to, to Charlotte, North Carolina. And my wife and I probably didn't say five words to each other. Not that I was mad at her. She wasn't mad at me. It's just a lot on my mind. So we get back to our house late Monday afternoon. And I knew Kenny Bernstein, the owner, was going to be calling. And I told Linda when we pulled in the driveway, I said, I do not want to talk to anybody. If anybody calls, if Kenny Bernstein calls, tell them I'm, I'm doing something. I'm not home. I'll call them back. So sure enough, I'm unloading the van and I hear our phone ring and Linda comes to the garage door and she said, Larry, telephone. I went, really? I told you I didn't want to talk to anybody. She said, you might want to take this call. So I pick up the phone and it was Robert Yates. He said, Larry, I know where you stand as far as your status with the 26 car. But he said, I am making a crew chief change in the morning. And I just wanted to call you one more time to see if you were interested in this job. And I said, when and where do you want to meet? And so we met at a Waffle House down at Sunset Boulevard off I-77. We must have sat there at about three or four o'clock in the morning. 
and I actually took the job with the 28 car in Robert Yates Racing. Wow. Uh, and what do you remember from Davies on uh, his last race? Yeah, you know, we had so much success, Jacob. We, we, we ended up winning five races in 1991, finished, I think, third in the points, won the all-star race, led it from green flag to checkered. Couldn't wait to get 1992 started. We started out by winning the Daytona 500. We ended up winning five races in 1992, plus the all-star race again, finished uh, third in the points, actually had the points lead going into the final race. And that's when we got caught up in that wreck. And, and Alan Kowicki ended up winning the championship. We ended up finishing third. And 1993 did not get started that well. We did end up winning the Richmond race, race number two or three. But we had just kind of lost our way. And we built a brand new race car to go to Loud, New Hampshire. And... Uh, Went up there, qualified well, and was actually leading the race with about 20 or 25 laps to go, and the caution came out. And I knew we were probably in trouble because this race car was so good on the long run, but short runs, which is what we we're going to have, it just took it a few laps to get going. And we ended up finishing third to, uh, to Rusty Wallace and Mark Martin. But the good thing about that race, I felt like we had found our way again. And I knew I, Davey felt the same way. So Davey and I, we, we, we flew with Davey. Davey would, would pick us up in Charlotte, go to the racetrack. He'd drop us back off, and then he'd fly on back to Uniontown. And Davey actually sat in the back with us. His pilot, Sam Mance, and his dad, Bobby Allison, flew the plane home. And it was, you know, Sam and, and Bobby and Davey, Eli Gold, who he did the announcement, was on the plane, myself, Robert, a couple of crew members. And we sat in the back and, and just chatted all the way back to Charlotte. And Davey and I always talked on the phone about noontime on Monday. We would, we would kind of debrief from the, the race that we just had run, and we would start talking about the race coming up. And when we landed in Charlotte, uh, Davey said, by the way, can we wait and talk on Tuesday? He said, I'm going to fly the helicopter up to Talladega tomorrow. And uh, David Bonnet, Neil Bonnet's son, is testing an ARCA car. And I want to go up there and see if I can, can help him in any way. I said, absolutely. Just call me on Tuesday. Well, unfortunately, when we said goodbye, that was the last conversation that that Davey and I had because the next day is when unfortunately he was tragically killed uh, in that helicopter crash. Yeah. Now, how Dale Earnhardt uh, won the 1998 Daytona 500, and how uh, basically, oh, it's how important did it mean for Dale to win that race? You know, that was my second year to be with Dale. And unfortunately, we had went winless in 1997. We still finished, I think, fourth or fifth in the points, but we went winless. We just couldn't find victory lane. And if you go back to the 1997 Daytona 500, we had had a very up-and-down day. My very first race with the three-car in Dale, we'd had a very up-and-down day. But somehow, 
with about 20 or so laps to go, we were leading the race. I remember looking at, at Richard Childress, the owner, and going, what do you think, boss? He said, been here way too many times. With about 11, 12 laps to go, I knew exactly what he was talking about because we were barrel rolling down the back straightaway where the car had picked up a push off turn two, and I think it was Dale Jarrett had gotten to his left rear, and he spun, and that's when he was barrel rolling. So I knew exactly what he was talking about. But 1998, Dale, Dale played how much he wanted to win that race. But I knew how bad he wanted to win. Because I remember right before we buckled that wind in that, before the, the 98-500, he looked at me and he said, we got a good race car. You just get me near the front at the end of this thing. And if I'm not leading, whoever's leading, their good day is going to go bad. <laughs> Just the whole speed week had just been picture perfect. We we had Jacob, we had built that car in the summer of 1997. Even before the 97 season ended, we had been in the wind tunnel with it a, a number of times. We had tested it at, at Talladega. Dave Marcus did a lot of the testing for us. And the first time Dale actually climbed in that car, <coughs> excuse me was the January test at Daytona. And first time he drove it, he said, we got something. We got something for him. And when we got back down there for Daytona, every day it just seemed like the slicker the track got, the better that car got. It just, it was fast and it just handled well. And uh, fortunately we were able to seal the deal in his 20th year of trying to win the 500. Now, and what do you remember uh, from that race in 2001, when Dale Earnhardt uh, uh, sadly lost his life in that race. Yeah, we, we got broke in as broadcasters in, in not a very good way. It was our very first race with NASCAR on Fox, and we had had an unbelievable race. And it was going to end up being a storybook finish because Michael Waltrip, in his first race for Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, the number 15 Napa car. He's leading the race. His brother, Daryl, is in the booth calling the race. Michael was like zero for 470 or something, had never won a Cup Series race. And he takes the white flag leading. And I remember our producer, Neil Goldberg, told Daryl when Michael took the white flag leading, be a brother, be a brother. And so Mike Joy and I kind of just laid out and let Daryl call that race to, to the finish with Michael Lee to get his not only his first win, but it's it's in the flipping Daytona 500, the biggest race of the year. But I remember watching Dale in the closing laps of that race. He's got the two cars he owns up there leading, Michael Waltrip and his son, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and he was almost, the closing laps of that race, he was almost driving defensively versus offensively. It was almost like a, a mama bear protecting his two cubs, protecting her two cubs up there. And I think as much as Dale Earnhardt was all about winning, I got a feeling he was going to be okay finishing third that day because of the two guys up there. He had his son up there. He had a guy that he had just hired 
that everybody told him he was out of his mind for hiring. And I think he was going to be okay. And when that crash happened in turn four in the final lap, you know, it just, it looked like a crash. It didn't look that bad, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, we've kind of got our eye on Michael taking the checkered flag. We kind of got our eye on turn four. And I figured Dale's going to climb out of that car. And he's not, he's going to be tickled to death with the outcome. He's not going to be happy that, he, that his 03 car is down there torn up. But there were a few things that happened, Jacob, that I, I just were red flags. One, I remember Ken Schrader getting out of his car, who was involved in the wreck. And I remember seeing him walk over to the window of the car. And all of a sudden, he started frantically waving his arms, like waving the medical people. Like, that's good. And then I remember them cutting the roof off the car. But I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's complaining about his back, you know, and they just want to be really careful. But then when they put him in the ambulance, and that ambulance never stopped at the infield care center. It just drove out the tunnel. And I remember we had a shot of that ambulance going down Halifax Boulevard toward the hospital. There just didn't seem to be any sense of urgency. I just didn't have a good feeling. And I remember walking over to the airport. The airport's just outside turns three and four. So I walked over there to catch my flight. And I remember walking over there and I was kind of in a, a little bit of a daze or a fog. And I remember checking in for my flight and going to the little restaurant there to get a sandwich. And my cell phone rang. And it was Neil Goldberg, our producer, and said, Larry, not sure if you've heard. I didn't want you to hear it from a fan. I didn't want you to see it on TV. But but Dale didn't make it. And it just, it probably, not that I was ready to hear that, it's probably confirmed what I already was feeling. Do you think oh, with Dale's a death happening, had it changed the whole sport and kind of made NASCAR more safer? No doubt. Whenever I, I do a, a talk or a, maybe I, I do a, a seminar or a keynote speech to a company about safety, I will go as, as morbid as it may sound, there was a lot of good that came out of that accident in Dale Earnhardt's death. And people will look at me like, what are you talking about? How could it be good? You know, we, we were in an era where we lost three drivers in a very short period of time due to wrecks. Tony Roper was killed 1999-2000 in a truck series race at Texas. Adam Petty was killed at Loudoun, New Hampshire. Kenny Irwin was killed at Loudoun, New Hampshire. So the way I put it, in a short period of time, we were getting little knocks on the door about we were in trouble. The door got kicked, slammed off the roof. The biggest name in our sport was killed in a, in a racing accident. The, as I put it, the Elvis Presley of NASCAR. Yeah. And I'm not saying we wouldn't be where we're at today, 23, 24 years later, but it accelerated a lot of things. It accelerated 
a head and neck restraint device. It accelerated full face helmets. It accelerated seat technology. It accelerated the, the way cars are, are, are constructed. Most notably, it accelerated safer barriers. Every wall we go to now, inside and out of every racetrack, has a safer barrier. You know, you'll never make racing completely risk-free. Honestly, it shouldn't be. That's one of the attractions. It's a dangerous sport. But the good thing is, and I knock on wood, we've not killed a driver in NASCAR since that accident in 2001. Now, now, do you think NASCAR is better now than it was years ago? No question. Light years. Light years. You know, we, we still have had some drivers that, that, that got injured. The biggest thing I see with NASCAR now is they're much more proactive than reactive. Most of my years as a crew chief, they would react to something. But it's after somebody had already been hurt or unfortunately been killed. But now, if there is a very serious accident, even if the driver walks away, which is happens most of the time, Ryan Newman's accident in the Daytona 500 a few years ago, Ryan Priest's accident at Daytona back this past August, and the list just goes on and on and on. They take that car back to the NASCAR R&D Center. They look at footage and, and photos and dissect the car, what can we do to be better? We don't want to wait till we seriously injure someone again or unfortunately maybe kill someone. We want to be proactive, and I think we're light years ahead on that. Now, you mentioned the Ryan Newman crash at Daytona, and what was your thoughts of that? Say that again. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, 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 you mentioned the Ryan Newman crash at Daytona. And what was your thoughts on that? When I saw it happen and I saw how things unfolded, my biggest thing that I was shocked at was less than two days later watching that man walk out of that hospital oh, yeah. with his two daughters in his hand. I, I you know, we... We went off the air with Fox, with the Daytona 500, but then I was in the studio, and Shannon Spake, Jamie McMurray, and I, we did a 30 or 45-minute show because we were truly expecting to get the news that Ryan Newman had lost his life. Now, we never were faced with that. Eventually, we went off the air, but I think that right there was a testament as to where our race cars are at today, everything about them. And trust me, there were things that were learned from that wreck that got incorporated into this new car that we now will be racing for the third year starting in 2024. So uh, speaking of the new car, do you like the new cars? I do. I still think we still have more work to do, and, and NASCAR knows that as well. But when you look at the fact that this past year alone, we had 15 different winners, 15 different winners. The competition is wide open. It has taken the gap from the, not only is it a, a much safer car and continues to grow from that standpoint, 
it's taken teams like college racing, front row motorsports. It's probably the reason that that track house racing in 2311 was able to come in here as a brand new organization and be competitive to be able to race against Joe Gibbs racing and Hendrick motorsports and Stuart Haas racing and team Penske. It's made it where, I mean, our sport was pretty unpredictable from a competition standpoint before the next gen car. It's totally, I think the number, including Kevin Harvick and Kurt Busch, who has now retired in our last two years combined with the next gen car, we have had 25 different winners. You probably would have to go and look at the history of Formula One for decades <laughs> to see that they've had 25 different winners. Now, uh, now who do you think is going to be the one to dominate the season in 2024? I don't know that anybody will dominate it. We've <laughs> not had anybody that's dominated it. You know, you could say William Byron was dominant this past year. He won six races. That was two or three more than any other driver out there but he was not the guy hoisting the trophy. What I see, and and I saw it two years ago with Joey Logano, and I saw it last year with Ryan Blaney, we go through the regular season, and we talk about this team and this driver and this team and this driver, but it seems like there's always somebody laying in the weeds that we're not paying a lot of attention to, and that person in 2022 was Joey Logano, And that person absolutely last year was Ryan Blaney. Because after Ryan won the Coke 600, which I think was race number 14 in May, he never even had another top five finish until he got in the playoffs. So, yeah, I could give you guys to watch. I could tell you to keep an eye on Denny Hamlin again this year. I could tell you to keep an eye on Chase Elliott. I think he'll be back. But I'm telling you, there's somebody right now that we won't be paying attention to that's just kind of laying in the weeds, maybe wins a race, maybe wins two, that when we get to the playoffs, they're going to move to the surface and they're going to move to the forefront because that's exactly what's happened in the last two years. Now, which I've asked um, uh, my how my guests ha- are involved in a NASCAR, like Chris Mars oh, was on the pro- uh, oh, Chris Mars was on the podcast uh on January 1st, which I, which I asked him the same question. Uh, he got a favorite person that you like to work with. Like a driver? Oh, uh, Like a colleague. A colleague. I probably, as far as another announcer, then. Is that yeah. yeah. Another announcer. Um, well, I'm excited about working with Kevin Harvick. I think Kevin Harvick, is going to bring so much to our broadcast. You know, he just retired. He has stepped right out of the race car. Kevin and I have had lunch together and spent some time together watching him on our Zoom production call. I think he's going to move the needle with NASCAR broadcasting. I I, I think he's going to move the bar, and I honestly can't wait for our broadcast to start here in just a few weeks. Of course, the class at the L.A. Coliseum and then Two weeks later, the Daytona 500. Uh, honestly, if we hadn't already signed Kevin Harvick, Fox had already signed him, he'd probably be the number one guy on my list. And I just feel fortunate 
that he's going to be a teammate of ours now. Now, uh, uh, do you get a favorite uh, driver that you like to, uh, to work with? I, uh, as far as current drivers, I probably would love to go back in time and work with Kyle Larson. There's just, he's such a natural talent. I, I think even people in the, in the garage area that has multiple wins and multiple championships will tell you he's probably the most talented race car driver in the garage area right now. And, uh, I think his numbers since joining Hendrick Motorsports, they kind of speak for themselves. Absolutely. Now I seen online yesterday that uh, I seen online yesterday that it was your birthday. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I officially turned sixty five uh, on January tenth, so which means my Medicare car is now effective. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, towards the end of the podcast, which I like to ask my guests if they got any closing thoughts. So do you get any closing thoughts for the people out there in the podcast world? You, you know, probably when you, the, you look at the things that you and I have just spoken about for the last 45 or 50 minutes, um, a lot of people go through life and they don't have one fulfilling working career. They maybe have a career, they have to have a job, they have to make a living, but they maybe didn't really enjoy their career. They had something else that they enjoyed outside of their job. People ask me, what do I do for fun? My job is for fun. <laughs> I make a living at doing what I thoroughly enjoy. And for a guy from Birmingham, Alabama, that barely, I mean truly barely, got their high school diploma. I had to actually probably bribe a few teachers to give me the diploma. I said, you don't want to have to put up with me another year. You need to get me out of here. But to have one fulfilling career, not just one, but now two as a crew chief and as a broadcaster, I feel like I'm the luckiest, most blessed guy alive. And people go, ah, dreams don't come true. Well, if you don't think dreams come true, you've just listened to a guy for the last 50 minutes that's walking, living proof that if you believe in something, you you committed to something, you're dedicated to something, and you don't give up, that absolutely dreams can come true. Absolutely. And where can people find you on the Internet? Yeah, you know, you've got the website, um, LarryMcReynolds.com. Uh, on social media, I'm very active on X or Twitter, yeah. 28 on Instagram, LarryMac28. Uh, and if you want to do a cameo for a friend or a relative, maybe an anniversary or a birthday or just good luck, congratulations, I'm very active on, on cameo as well. All right, Larry. Well, Donald, thank you for coming on the podcast to uh, talk about your career in NASCAR. Well, we're excited about 2024. Hard to believe it will be our my 24th season and the 24th season of NASCAR on Fox. We'll actually be covering – our 21st Daytona 500 come February the 18th. And uh, we're ready to get this thing started because kind of, as I alluded to, I can give you all the storylines we're looking for, but there's probably one that's going to rear its head that we're not even thinking about right now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and that wraps up today's episode of uh, conversations with Jacob. Tune in next week for another episode until then God bless. And we'll catch you next week.